in fiscal 15, institutions were spending about $129 per student in this space. And that's now up to $163 per student. So I, I think it's, it's not only technology, Heather, but um, the increased level of service that our students are expecting when they come to our, our institution. Welcome to Focus, a podcast dedicated to the business of higher education. I'm your host, Heather Richmond, and we will be exploring the challenges and opportunities facing today's higher learning institutions. Today I talk with Brian Dixon, Director of Student Financial Services and Educational Programs at Nakubo. He discusses data from the 2020 Student Financial Services Benchmarking Study and shares insights on procedures, staffing, and payments. Thanks for joining me again, Brian. Thanks, Heather. It's good to be back. Yeah, well, you know, you joined us on our very first season to talk about the 2019 Student Financial Services Benchmarking Study, but now the 2020 annual report has been released, so I thought it'd be a great way for you to give us just an update on the new findings. Yeah, happy to. Um, Yeah, so this is the 12th year, believe it or not, of of the study and the report, um, you know, which we do annually. And, And basically what this study does is we look at ratios from campuses and then we kind of average those out. And and it's really meant for comparison purposes, right? To see where folks measure up to their peers. So we'll have, you know, the overall results, but we also break down the results by institution type. And, and this year we're actually using the Carnegie classifications, but we also break things down by enrollment. And I think I think that's really the useful way to to compare, right? Because right. if we're if we're talking about work and effort, we're talking about, you know, how much it takes to do X, Y, or Z. The number of students that an institution has enrolled is, is really going to be the big factor. So, yeah. so there's that. And then the, the, the time frame of this study, this is always kind of the confusing part, and even <laughs> I get confused, so, so don't worry if you are too. So let me just try to explain. This is the 2020 study. Uh, the 2020 SFS benchmarking report, which looks at fiscal year 19, which ended for most institutions June 30th, 2019. And that means um, we won't won't see any numbers directly related to the COVID-19 pandemic, which which is probably something you were probably wondering. But (laughs) one thing to keep in mind, uh, as we're talking about the, the, you know, the timeline here, the data collection for the report uh, that we're talking about today uh, began just as we were all locking down. Right. Uh, traditionally, March uh, is a less busy time for student account staff. Uh, so that's when we collected the fiscal 19 data, March of 2020. Um, so, you know, that said, there, there may have been a bit of an impact on who participated. Okay. And, and we call that out um, in the intro text to the report, just, just so folks know that there was a lot going on when this data was being collected. But that's kind of, the, in a nutshell, what, what the report kind of is. Gotcha. And then I know that right now, then, that means you're finishing up the findings from fiscal year 2021. So later this year, actually, we just happen to have our ComTech conference. That might be a perfect time to go over those results, too. Yeah, yeah. So it's fiscal uh, 20. And um, and yeah, that, uh, that's the interesting part. And I would be, be happy to, to share at ComTech. I think, um, I think we will see some interesting new data uh, uh, since uh, the changes from the pandemic. And we should, we should have some preliminary data to share, share by then for your conference. Uh, even more interesting, though, 
Um, and maybe I'm inviting myself to your contact in 2022. <laughs> uh, even more interesting will be the, uh, the fiscal 21 data that we'll be collecting next spring. Uh, but uh, yeah, see, it's, it's, it's confusing with the year. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And Brian, you're always welcome to come to any of our conferences all the time. <laughs> Wonderful. Same to you. We'd love to have you back, hopefully, when we have uh, an in-person annual meeting. In That's right. Can't wait for that. So let's go ahead and dive into that 2019 study then. So I know that uh, it's always important to look at staffing benchmarks, especially now where many institutions took a hit to resources. So what'd you find here? Yeah, I, I really think that's one of the more helpful parts of this study. Um, and I get a lot of questions on it, and, and that makes sense, right? Directors are trying to, to see if, if they are adequately staffed, and if they aren't, uh, these data can help uh, justify the uh, expense of increasing the number of staff on their team. So right. we did see an overall increase in staffing in fiscal year 19. Um, we were at uh, 11 and a half uh, full-time equivalent staff. And, and, and there's a correlation there with enrollment, um, as you would expect. So schools right. with more than 15,000 students are gonna have uh, staffing above that 11.5. That's just the average overall. And those with fewer students will have a lower staffing level. Right. So schools with fewer than 4,000 students, for example, had an average of four and a half staff. And, and we actually look at actually the ratio of students to staff members too. And that's, that's also a really helpful ratio. And it's been pretty steady at 831 students. Uh, and we kind of stayed in that ballpark over the last five years. And again, though, we still see that correlation to enrollment size um, with for example, 484 students per staff at schools with those small schools, fewer than 4,000 students, okay. and almost 1,400 students per staff at large institutions. And, and the other bit to look at is, is how long folks are, are working in these offices and in these positions. Right. Um, in, this, in this most recent report, we found um, uh, that overall, 11, about 11% 11 of staff had less than one year experience. Wow. And, and yeah, and the breakdown by enrollment gets, gets interesting too. Uh, the group with the smallest percentage of staff with more than 10 years experience, um, small schools. So, huh. so those with fewer than 4,000 students, um, you know, the, the, they're also the ones with the largest you know, proportion of staff with less than one year experience at, at about 12%. And on the other side, you know, we have the research institutions and they have the largest portion of staff with over the 10 years of experience. Okay. And, and, and I know I'm sharing a lot here and folks are definitely going to want to dig into the data of the report, right. but the thing to keep in mind, yeah, the thing to keep in mind uh, is that these distributions, um, the small schools, the research universities, um, the percentages actually hold pretty steady across the years. Um, we've had some blips here and there, but uh, it appears to be fairly steady. It appears to be a fairly steady um, pipeline uh, of staff uh, starting off in these roles and a number of folks kind of riding it out for, for many years. Yeah, you know, it's actually really interesting. And I think 
probably a lot had to do with uh, the craziness of 2020, but seeing a lot of folks who are retiring and some new um, people coming in. And, you know, that's what really sets higher ed apart is the long tenured staff. So it really is mm-hmm. exciting to see this transition to new faces coming into the business office. And as we embark on this new normal, we're all learning together. So it's really a great time, I think. And this is where technology could really help define new business processes and practices as we have new tenured staff coming coming on board, isn't it? Absolutely. And 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 we did see an increase in, in operating budgets um, per student by more than 26%. So, so these funds wow. could definitely be used to invest um, in new technology. So, so looking back in fiscal 15, institutions were spending about $129 per student in this space. And that's now up to $163 per student. So mm. I, I think it's, it's not only technology, Heather, but right. um, the increased level of service that our students are expecting when they come to our, our institution. You know, we see SFS professionals uh, doing a heck of a lot more than just accepting payments, right? Absolutely. They're, they're part of the student success efforts at campuses. Um, at least they, they should be. <laughs> you know, it's interesting not to kind of plug us, but that's why we made some some transitions even to what used to be more our solution for the cashiering office and being more in this mm-hmm. advising role. So because we're seeing, to your point, they're not just coming to need to make a payment at the window, but they actually want to get an understanding of the full picture and their success. And what do I owe here? What financial aid do I have coming? And, you know, where have I been around campus, the engagement? So it's really a, really a transition. Yeah. And, you know, outside of, you know, academic issues, you know, finances are probably the second biggest, you know, challenge for students. And, and these folks can definitely help in that space for sure. Absolutely. Well, you know, speaking of finances, what I always like to dive into, of course, in this study is the data on payment channels. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> surprising, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and it's really no surprise, though, that the online payments continue to rise. But I, I actually get shocked every year when I read this that there's still quite a few payments that are coming in through those manual channels. So can you expand on what you found here? Absolutely. And, and a few years ago, uh, we finally crossed the 50% mark for uh, online payments. And currently we're seeing online payments account for uh, about 55% of the dollars received and just 28% uh, are manual. And then you have some of the, the smaller ways like um, like payment plans or wires or you know the lockbox or right. um, an international uh, payment processor. But all of those combined add up to just under 17%. So, so not insignificant. It's not insignificant, sure. but really the bulk uh, is either online or kind of manual. And and online is good, right? Because right. it can um, it can help lower operating costs. And 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 when we look at the types of schools, um, small colleges and universities have seen the largest increases in online payments over the years. But but the thing is. Uh, their percentages are still behind the larger institutions. They've just seen the, the greatest gain. So they're, they're kind okay. of playing catch up to those bigger uh, universities. Sure. Um, I mean, uh, at the large, you know, 15,000 plus enrolled institutions, um, two thirds uh, of the dollars uh, received are, are online. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so I wonder if the pandemic and all that's going on to transition to remote services remove some of those barriers to online payments. Do you think next year's numbers are going to see a huge shift? Uh, yeah, 
that's probably true, Heather, and, and they, they've, that they've shifted to online, but it's, it's really hard to say uh, if we will see a, a major shift in next year's study since, um, again, the data collection uh, was in spring of 2020, and probably most of the payments for that term were probably made before the shift to remote, and folks were working from home and attending uh, their classes from home. But but we might we might see um, might see some there. Um, but yeah, it's kind of the timing of things is a little weird with our data collection lining up with when everything kind of went upside down last year. Yeah, that's true. You know, what else I found very interesting was payments from a bank account, either a paper check or ACH, was higher at the four-year institutions, but yet at the community colleges, credit cards were higher. So do you have any perspective on that? Yeah, yeah. So overall, um, we saw 43% of the payment dollars were paid uh, by ACH and, and 22% were with a paper check. Uh, and the gap between those uh, continues to widen, but but yeah, overall the majority of payments uh, by dollar volume are, are coming through those those methods, and mm-hmm. you know that's that's almost two thirds. Um, and then overall, about twenty eight percent are credit card payments. Um, but but similar to checks, um, with credit cards, uh, there's more moving to online, right. less in person. As for the community colleges, they, they do stand out when we look at, at the payment methods. Um, as you mentioned, 56% of the payments are, are through credit cards, both online and in person. And, and that's driven kind of by a number of factors. Honestly, you, you have the, the low price of tuition and fee. Right. Um, payments may be made out of pocket and less reliant on federal student aid. Um, then you think of the demographics of, of students enrolled at, at, at these institutions. Um, plus, students could be taking one-off courses rather than enrolling in a whole program. True. So there, there are lots of reasons. And, and also, when you think um, about interchange with those lower dollars, um, the credit card fees that you know high uh, tuition institutions, those would be a lot larger compared to, say, those at community colleges. Um, but you know, we still see credit card payments sure. at the higher price institutions, and the, the the parents and students are willing to to kind of you know pay those charges. I guess they just love their points and their <laughs> frequent flyer miles. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. I can see that where and and a lot of that I see community colleges maybe aren't doing the convenience fee program, whereas the larger institutions are. Because to your point, that's a very significant cost uh, to the school to be able to process those. And and really, you know, I think about that, what you were saying, too, about the maybe even having a one-off or, or because they're paying out of pocket at a community college, then really need to have some uh, flexibility in payments. And that's where being able to provide flexible payment plans can actually help these students spread out those uh, payments without incurring those interest charge or credit cards. Yeah, Heather, we we definitely can do better about uh, helping students and families understand their options here. Yeah. Um, the interest rates on credit cards that's likely going to be way above the interest rates on student loans, um, at least federal uh, direct loans. But but even beyond that, most institutions offer payment plans to their students, and and you know if if four to five payments per semester uh, works for a student, uh, that's obviously going to be uh, the best choice for them. So. So yeah, I'm I'm a big advocate of, of payment plans as a tool to help students pay for higher education. 
Absolutely. And, but, you know, so you have all these options and even with the ability for a student to get on a payment plan or all the different payment methods we just talked about, there still is a percentage of unpaid balances and collections. So can you talk a little bit about the data you discovered on this? Yeah, for sure. Uh, we look at a measure of current and previously enrolled students with unpaid balances. And in our data from fiscal 19, we found that to be 34%. And it's it's been ticking upward ever so slightly from previous years. Okay. It's, it's a slow increase, but it's steady. Um, and that figure is going to vary by institution type and the institution's policies, right? So right. you think about registration holds coming into play here um, for folks with unpaid balances and the college or university may withhold other services, but really it's, it's a line that can vary literally from campus to campus, uh, not only the policy, but the dollar amounts involved, right? right? So like I would say, it's that balance between student success and the institution's fiduciary responsibility. And when it comes to collections, um, the student accounts placed in collections, it's, it's, it's usually around 5%. Um, and that number really hasn't changed much over, over the years. But it's going to be interesting down the road to see the collections percentages change over the next two years um, of data collection right. since some states had restrictions on collections during the pandemic. So True. definitely stay tuned there. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really interesting. And it's another area where technology really comes into play because with new tools to be able to provide different types of plans or different types of uh, really getting those balances paid before they go to collections, I'm seeing a lot more schools really take advantage of that too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as you said, student experience really continues to be that top of mind, especially when we talk about anything to do with payments. Like you said, outside of academics, really the business of higher education is is the key there. And so, and that means really both incoming payments, but also outgoing. So let's talk a little bit now about refunding and as we continue to see an increase in, in the electronic refund options. Yeah, the, uh, these credit balance refunds happen um when payments, and that includes aid, um, exceed charges. Right. Uh, and there are, there are some specific rules that schools have to follow um, if that happens as a result of federal student aid, but we, we won't get into that. But yeah, similar to payments, we're seeing schools um, increasingly move to electronic disbursements of these refunds. It's, it's faster, it's cheaper, and it's safer. And that's right. a really good trifecta. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're, we're seeing um, direct deposits continue to increase uh, with over 55% of dollars distributed that way. Um, and as you would expect, the, uh, the use of paper checks uh, for those refunds continues to decline. Sure. And there's pretty much a direct correlation with direct deposit pickup and enrollment size okay. um, with 72% at large institutions and small institutions dispersing 61% of these refund dollars with paper check. Interesting. So you have 72% direct deposit at large, 61% check at small. And that could also speak to the, the systems, the, the technologies, the right. platforms that large institutions have access to compared to their, to their, smaller, uh, their smaller counterparts. 
Yeah, I was going to say that, too. It all kind of comes back to technology, right? And if they have a mechanism to really enable the student to go in and select direct deposit, for instance, um, to their bank account for that for that uh, refund. So, yeah, I'm going to be really interested in the stats for next year's survey on electronic disbursements of refunds as obviously that was one of the biggest hurdles at the beginning of COVID was getting out those refunds to students. Yeah, that's that's a really good point, Heather. Um, so think back to March and April of 2020. Right. Schools were quickly trying to figure out how to get, you know, room and board adjustments to students. Um, they wanted to get those dollars to students quickly. Um, on top of that, uh, a lot of schools used their existing credit balance uh, refund methods to disperse emergency grants to students. Right. And, and their students would have been given a good reason to switch to direct deposit if they didn't already have that set up, right? There's no motivation better than getting your money quickly, right? right. <laughs> so now schools have ACH info for a lot of their students. So it'll be interesting to see how those trends hold. But you still, you know, you still have plenty of you know, unbanked and underbanked students out there. So you're not going to see, you know, a hundred percent pickup, but that's fine because there's always situations where you'll need uh, to disperse those dollars, you know, by check or or, or by some other uh, some other method. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really interesting, and I think that there was definitely this newfound awareness um, for students and the importance of refunds, and like you said, being able to get it as quickly as you possibly can. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, you know, people were it was it was rough. Yeah, and and schools wanted to get you know they didn't want to have to deal with is the student. Um, where are they staying? You know, when everyone was just sent home, are they at their, you know, listed address? Are they with their parents? Are they with an aunt or an uncle? Are they with friends? Where do we send the check so the ACH would keep? Yeah. Well, you know, Brian, another topic that's always near and dear to my heart as well is third-party payments, especially after having the privilege back in the day of serving on Nakuba's working group uh, around third-party payments. So what are you seeing here? Yeah, third-party payments. So that's your your private scholarships and the payments by employers, the government, foreign governments. Um, they take a bit more work, right. uh, so it's good to measure. Um, and overall, we've seen um, a decrease in the average uh, third-party billing instances per staff member. That's kind of the, the, the number we look at. And we're at 955 uh, in the most uh, data, recent data. So that's um, 955 billing instances per staff member. Okay. And that's down from um, uh, over 1,100 back in fiscal 15. But but interestingly, the, the median in fiscal 19 was 358. Um, so, so that means that those institutions with a lot of the third-party billings, they're kind of skewing the data right. a bit. And, and again, we, we also see a lot of movement between institutions by their enrollment size. Sure. And then and then the question is, why is this ratio going down, right? And honestly, it's it's hard to say. And I know a lot of those third-party payments are tied to military service. So right. I'd be really curious to see um, enrollment trends for those students if, if they're going down. And that could be one possible explanation for what we're seeing here. But it's it's hard to say, and I don't want to I don't want to speculate too much. Um, right. 
Well, and it may also be another way. I keep, uh, I feel like I'm saying the same thing over and over again, but uh, with technology, by being able to have tools to, you know, is that reducing, you know, the amount of work needed per staff member? We, you know, talk maybe, maybe the question uh, needs to be altered a little. Yeah, it, it just might. Maybe the, the effort isn't so much the, the number of, of billing instances, but perhaps the time. So, yeah, it's something to think about. Yeah, you know, and uh, again, another one of these shifts that I've heard about due to the remote services uh, that had to be introduced last year really was around this third-party payments. And so um, one of our schools that's using our solution for third-party payments called SponsorPoint, they're really starting to see many of their sponsors adopt using the self-service portal for both billing and payments. So I'll say before the the sponsors, and this is probably more in the, you know, you know, scholarships and you know, not not the bigger you know military organizations, but more of the uh, companies and organizations used to be like, okay, I'll look at the bill online, but I'm still going to go through and send you a check that you have to, um, you know, look through and reconcile through remittance. But now this past year, they're actually seeing a lot of those organizations do go ahead and do the payment online too. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Are you seeing uh, some shifts here or maybe hearing a need for not just the third-party payments for students, but maybe more on the non-student invoices. Now we are getting back to quasi-normal. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't doubt it. Um, you you mentioned uh, how you were part of our working group that uh, was dealing with this. Uh, I won't say how long ago because, you know, right, Heather, we're all in our 20s, so we couldn't have been working on it not that, that long, long ago, ago right? right. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, schools were saying, you know, hey, we need a, a central tool of sorts to, to, to make this work. And, and I know a lot of folks were scrambling to, to figure it out. And you guys came up with a pretty interesting product. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just doing whatever we can to really get away from these manual processes. And, and, and um, third party payments, you know, it was, it was that manual process. But as for the payments coming from um, non-student invoices, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's a desire there. And, and you think about us going back to normal, back on campus, trying to, to get folks back on campus. Uh, you can definitely uh, have those payments. So think about all the soccer camps that a campus might host in the summer or, or renting conference space or right. wedding rentals. Um, as we start to resume those activities on campus, um, the need for that, I, I think that that's an interesting um uh, an interesting thing to think about, and I would imagine uh, schools would take advantage. So let's hope that the, those activities uh, resume and, and that, that institutions come up with with their creative solutions, as they always do. They they really do. So, well, this has been really insightful, Brian. Now, I know the question that a lot of our listeners are going to have is, okay, so where do I go find the study, and where can I download this to see all of the the numbers you talked about? Yeah, so if you just go to our homepage, nakubo.org, um, there is a resources tab. And then uh, under the research column, you'll see the uh, Student Financial Services um, benchmarking report. And uh, you can go in and, and check it all out. We have plenty of appendices, and, and it's uh, a lot of data. Let's just <laughs> it is. Well, we we really have enjoyed being able to uh, sponsor that study for the last few years and think it's really valuable data. Uh, so again, thanks so much for walking us through the latest results of the Student Financial Services Benchmarking Study and looking forward to getting the latest results this fall. Thanks for having me, Heather. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Focus. Don't forget to subscribe 
so you can stay up to date on the business of higher education. For more information, check us out at touchnet.com.